Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med ed in the PQ. PQ Doc on Call focuses on interesting PQ cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So, let's get into our episode. Welcome to an episode of a 16-year-old who is coughing up blood. Here's the case. A 16-year-old female with history of lupus was transferred to the PICU due to hypoxia requiring increasing FiO2. A few hours prior to admission to the PICU, the patient started coughing up blood and had difficulty breathing. The patient was admitted to the general pediatric floor two days earlier for pneumonia requiring IV antibiotics and oxygen via nasal cannula. Once transferred to the PICU, she had a rapid deterioration with progressive hematemesis, worsening respiratory distress, and saturations in the low 70s requiring escalating FiO2. The patient was emergently intubated for respiratory failure using ketamine, fentanyl, and rocuronium. Initial chest x-ray showed worsening bibasilar, alveolar, and interstitial airspace disease concerning for pulmonary hemorrhage. Patient was initially placed on high-frequency oscillatory ventilation with a mean airway pressure of 26, FiO2 of 70%, a Hertz of 8, and a Delta P of 70. The patient was later transitioned to APRV, or airway pressure release ventilation. The patient was started on inhaled transexemic acid, or TXA, and high-dose pulse steroids. Patient initially continued to have some blood coming out from the endotracheal tube with suctioning, but over the next 24 hours, the secretions became more clear. Taking a step back, the mother reported that the patient never had hematemesis or hemoptysis before. The patient didn't even have any bleeding from a body orifice in the past as well. The mother denies any frequent respiratory infections or recent URI symptoms and noted that the patient had been vaccinated as well as boosted for COVID. On admission, pertinently, her COVID PCR was negative. Also, when speaking to mother, she stated that the patient does not engage in tobacco products or alcohol. Physical exam revealed a well-developed teenage girl laying supine in bed, deeply sedated and mechanically ventilated. There was decreased aeration at the lung bases and coarse breath sounds throughout. There was no hepatosplenomegaly, and exams of heart, abdomen, and other systems were normal. There was no skin rash, and extremities were well-perfused with no clubbing in the fingers. The pulmonary team was consulted on a workup which was relevant for pulmonary hemorrhage. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, we have here a 16-year-old girl who has autoimmune disease, which is basically lupus, systemic lupus in her case. We have respiratory failure, warranting mechanical ventilation, secondary to pulmonary hemorrhage. And her presentation and rapid deterioration bring up the concern for diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, which is our topic of discussion for today. This episode will be organized in the following manner. We'll first start with the definition, move into some etiologies of pulmonary hemorrhage, talk about the pathophysiology, and then pivot into the diagnosis as well as management. So Rahul, how do we define pulmonary hemorrhage? Pulmonary hemorrhage is really defined as the extravasation of blood into airways or even the lung parenchyma. 
Now, blood in the airways produces a diffusion barrier, resulting in hypoxemia. Due to reduction of airway diameter from accumulated blood, there is also increased airway resistance and even airway obstruction. Subsequently, ventilation can be impaired, leading to increased work of breathing, as well as myocardial work required for oxygen delivery. Now, repeated episodes of pulmonary hemorrhage can result in interstitial fibrosis, and this can change the overall lung compliance. Another definition which I want to highlight is the definition of hemoptysis. Now, hemoptysis by definition is any bleeding from below the vocal cords. When we think about pulmonary hemorrhage, which can present as hemoptysis, it can be classified as either focal or diffuse. And when we think about diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage, it can be further classified as diffuse immune or diffuse non-immune. Now, to summarize, loss of 10% of a patient's circulating blood volume into the lungs, regardless of age, causes a significant alteration in cardiorespiratory function and should be considered massive hemoptysis. In adults, massive pulmonary hemorrhage is defined as blood loss of 600 mLs in more than 24 hours. In infants, the involvement of at least two pulmonary lobes by confluent foci of extravasated RBCs constitutes as massive pulmonary hemorrhage. Remember, enough bleeding to make a clinician or provider nervous is probably massive. So Pradeep, let's go ahead and pivot and talk about etiologies. What are some causes of pulmonary hemorrhage in the PICU? So Rahul, as you already mentioned, pulmonary hemorrhage can be non-immune diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage, which is usually seen in patients with congenital heart disease, like those with a total anomalous pulmonary venous return, pulmonary atresia, mitral stenosis, hypoplastic left heart, just to name a few of these. It can also be seen in neonates, secondary to sepsis, HIE, and those neonates who have a birth weight of less than 1,500 grams, and those with persistent pulmonary hypertension. It can also occur due to a coagulation abnormality. Bronchiectasis, infections such as TB, mycetomas are also important causes of pulmonary hemorrhage. Now, cocaine use and vaping, uh, typically adulterated with other substances, are also important toxic causes of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Now, diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage due to immune causes includes uh, mostly the pulmonary renal syndrome, such as good pasture syndrome, uh, Wagner's granulomatosis, lupus as in this girl, antiphospholipid syndrome, polyarthritis nodosa, HSP, drug-induced vasculitis, and typically, just to name a few drugs, propyl thiuracil, methimazole, hydralazine, and minocycline, and infections such as hantavirus, CMV, legionella, etc., can give rise to diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage due to immune causes. Now, lupus and polyarthritis nodosa account for majority of the vasculitis resulting in pulmonary hemorrhage. Now, focal pulmonary hemorrhage can occur due to foreign body aspiration, which is typically chronically retained, a pulmonary sequestration, a AV fistulas, thrombus or emboli, and neoplasms. Now, idiopathic pulmonary hemosiderosis, a diagnosis of exclusion, presents with a triad of hemoptysis, microcytic, hypochromic anemia, and diffuse alveolar filling opacities. Nonspecific lung injury not attributed to vasculitis or immune deposits is noted on microscopic examination. All right. To summarize, diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage. Think about non-immune causes secondary to heart disease and immune causes secondary to rheumatologic conditions. 
our patient in our case likely had immune-mediated pulmonary hemorrhage. Now, let's conclude our episode by going through diagnostics and management. So Rahul, if you had to work up this patient with pulmonary hemorrhage in your ICU, what would be your diagnostic approach? Typically in pulmonary hemorrhage, you can see ground glass diffuse opacities or even consolidations. Sometimes a mosaic type perfusion pattern can indicate a true arteriolar vasculitis. Now, in some patients, the chest radiograph can actually be normal, and that really emphasizes your clinical exam uh, in these patients. Now, high-resolution uh, computed tomography has higher sensitivity, and the classic features include ground glass opacities in a random distribution. Now, if we wanted to get more specific and a little bit more invasive, we could consider bronchoscopy and bronchoalveolar lavage. These are other diagnostic tools that we can closely with our pulmonologist to obtain. In bronchoalveolar lavage, the pathologist must search for hemosiderin-laden macrophages, which usually appear 24 to 48 hours after the diffuse alveolar hemorrhage has started. So remember, timing is very important. The presence of greater than 5% of hemosiderin-laden macrophages suggests blood in the alveoli concern for diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Finally, we want to obtain an echocardiogram as many non-immune causes of pulmonary hemorrhage can be related to changes in hydrostatic pressure in the venous circulation. Labs that you may want to get if you suspect pulmonary hemorrhage include a blood gas to look for oxygenation and ventilation issues, a complete metabolic panel, a complete blood count, a coagulation panel, ESR and CRP, especially if you're thinking about a vasculitis, and then specific autoantibodies. Urine analysis is also indicated, especially if you're worried about a pulmonary renal syndrome. Now, in some rare cases, a biopsy from the skin, lung, or kidney may be needed. To summarize, I would highly recommend a collaborative approach with pulmonary specialists, rheumatologists, intensivists, as well as hematology. So, Pradeep, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to pulmonary hemorrhage as our diagnosis, what would be your general management framework? Rahul, that's an excellent question. Initially, we must focus on basic PQ care with maintenance of airway and oxygenation, ventilation, as well as hemodynamic stability in the patient. Now, oxygen supplementation and even mechanical ventilation may be required. Prior to intubation, the patient should be placed in a Trendelenburg position, which will help the clots exit the airway. Now, PEEP should be increased on conventional ventilation for its tamponade effect, as well as help with hypoxemia. We typically use high-frequency oscillator with deep sedation plus-minus chemical paralysis or APRV mode on conventional ventilator. It is important to correct any coagulation factor deficiency as well as transfuse platelets or RBCs as needed. That was a great overview. And what I would like to add is that this increased PEEP, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, or even APRV, they all create increased mean airway pressure, which not only has a local tamponade effect, which you mentioned, Pradeep. However, it also increases the intrathoracic pressure, and that decreases preload. And downstream, this helps with optimal pulmonary hydrostatic pressure. Rahul, what are some of the other modalities you can use in diffuse alveolar hemorrhage? Endobronchial tamponade using a Fogarty catheter or even a cuffed endotracheal tube can be tried if the bleeding is restricted to a segment of a particular lung. 
right upper lobe bleeding is best managed by intubating the left mainstem bronchus with the cuffed endotracheal tube and inflating the cuff of the tube. Utilization of a double lumen or car lens type endotracheal tube may also be helpful in isolating the bleeding segment. You probably want to consult with your anesthesia colleagues as this type of management is uh, definitely a team sport. Now, there may be a role for rigid bronchoscopy to identify the source and type of bleeding. Rigid bronchoscopy can also be used for large volume lavage, as well as suctioning of blood and even control of the source of bleeding. So rigid bronchoscopy, again, can be more of a diagnostic as well as a therapeutic. Now, help of general surgery or even cardiothoracic surgery is invaluable in these patients. For focal pulmonary hemorrhage, surgical resection of the involved segment may be required or selective embolization of bronchial vessels may be needed. And this is a great time where you can involve your interventional radiology colleagues. Pradeep, we talked a lot about these invasive modalities for management of DAH. Are there any medical modalities? Specific uh, pulmonary renal syndromes can be treated using corticosteroids and other immunosuppressive agents. Plasmapheresis is an option for good pasture syndrome. High-dose methylprednisolone, 30 milligram per kilo or 1 gram daily for 3 days, followed by a slow taper, is typically used in diffuse immune-mediated pulmonary hemorrhage. Cyclophosphamide is the drug of choice for treatment of patients with Wagner's granulomatosis. Pradeep, what about any therapeutics on the horizon? So in one study by O'Neill et al. in Critical Care Exploration 2020, they reported the use of inhaled tranexamic acid or TXA as a novel treatment for pulmonary hemorrhage in critically ill pediatric patients. Cessation of pulmonary hemorrhage was achieved in 18 of 19 patients, which is 95%, with inhaled TXA with no major adverse events recorded. The study also reported that other variables such as oxygenation and coagulation were not affected by the use of inhaled TXA in this study. Additionally, they reported that patients received significantly less blood product after receiving inhaled TXA. So Rahul, how does TXA work and what are the clinical applications? Transexamic acid or TXA is a lysine analog that blocks the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin and inhibits binding of plasmin to fibrin, which stabilizes the fibrin matrix and thereby reducing bleeding. Remember that normally plasmin is an endogenous fibrinolytic. Now, systemic TXA, however, may be associated with serious complications, including venous thromboembolism, neurotoxicity, as well as seizures. Remember, related to venous thromboembolism, you are stabilizing a fibrin meshwork, so you will be hypercoagulable. In our patients, we typically use inhaled or endotracheally instilled TXA every six hours. Nebulization is done over 15 to 20 minutes and can be delivered in line during mechanical ventilation. You are definitely going to be working very closely with your respiratory therapist to administer inhaled TXA. Based on patient responses, you can reduce the dosing frequency. Rahul, can you summarize today's episode on diffuse alveolar hemorrhage? Absolutely. We talked about a lot today, but I just want to bring home a couple points. Number one, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is a medical emergency. Remember that 33% of patients can present without hemoptysis, 
So in a patient who is going to be high risk, you want to have serial physical examinations. Along with clinical findings of cough, hemoptysis, dyspnea, the presence of hemosiderin laden macrophages confirms the diagnosis of pulmonary hemorrhage. Remember that protecting the airway and optimizing oxygenation and ventilation is important in the management of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, as well as identifying and stopping the offending agent if possible. We talked a lot today about medical treatments such as pulsed steroids in immune-mediated causes of pulmonary hemorrhage, as well as inhaled TXA. This concludes our episode on pulmonary hemorrhage. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.